Is there a scent, a smell that can transport you to a particular memory? And I mentioned coffee earlier. I still, to this day, smell coffee and think of learning Spanish in Costa Rica. Right? Maybe it's the mixture of pine and peppermint that just transports you to Christmas and the memories with family. Or maybe you're like me, and there's something about smelling leaves and maybe cinnamon or pumpkin, and your mind's eye can immediately just see all of the beautiful colors of fall, right? Smell has a powerful association with memory. Maybe it's recalling a particular memory and your mind can almost smell that scent even though it's not there in front of you. Right? I, I know with the birth of each of our kids, um, I'm, I know this is a little weird, but bear with me. I, I loved the smell of a new baby's head. Right? It's like the new baby smell. I don't know what it is that does that, but I just love that moment of snuggling tight with them kissing their little head and, and smelling that newborn baby smell. And even now, as I think back to those first few moments of holding my kids in the hospital, my brain can almost trigger those scents in my mind. I've read that some scientists say that smell is actually the strongest, most powerful of the five senses. Right? It, it can have a, a profound impact on our overall well-being and on our ability to recall memories with, with vivid accuracy. So imagine with me, right, sitting at a dinner party when you are overtaken by a new smell, not wafting from the aroma of food or drink, but rather expensive perfume. A perfume that is not typically used with hospitality or for cleaning, but one that is so costly, it would have only been used for very, very special moments of anointing. Here in this account in Matthew 26, 6 through 13, we find a perfume that is made from a rare root of a Himalayan perennial herb that would have cost about the average year's wage. This would be a scent that would create a distinct memory of a moment that would set up the most significant event in history. A moment worthy of such a special and costly perfume. Let me set the stage further for you in this moment. You see, Jesus and his disciples were in Bethany. You may remember the village of Bethany. It sits just outside of Jerusalem, about a mile and a half, on the eastern slopes of the Mount of Olives. This is the hometown to Lazarus and Mary, and Martha, who we've met previously. But this passage, we are told that they are in a different home. They are in the home of Simon. 
Now, Simon was a common name for those times, much like our John or Bob or Michael today. The house of Simon could have been anyone. The Gospel of Matthew gives us a unique description, right? They were in the home of Simon the leper. You see, in this time, anyone with a skin condition or disease was considered unclean, unclean, and they were partitioned away from society. A lot like today, if you accidentally sneeze in the middle of Walmart, you know what I mean? And everybody steps back and just kind of waits for the PA system to declare you unclean or remove you from the store but on a much grander scale, right? Lepers were considered unclean. And if you even came near them or even dared to socialize with them, you ran the risk of touching them and then yourself becoming unclean. You see, touching someone unclean always made you unclean as well. We don't know if Simon the leper was still suffering from leprosy or if he was maybe the leper we met earlier in the gospel that Jesus healed. The the text doesn't tell us. However, it is still quite remarkable and uncommon that Jesus and his disciples would be socializing with a man like him either way. But This was common for Jesus, right? This was what he did. He ate with those you weren't supposed to. He went into the homes of people you weren't supposed to. And he befriended those you weren't supposed to. Jesus brought respect and worth to the sick, the segregated, and the sinner. Imagine Simon. He must have been just thrilled to have people in his house after all this time, guests in his home, let alone one so honored like Jesus, a rabbi. And I can imagine him spreading out before them food, a grand buffet. And remember, This was probably just before Passover week. So they're they're gearing up for a week of feasts. And most likely this is on the eve of Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. So as they gather in the home of Simon the leper, Jesus, his disciples, and the other guests, there's this spread of food before them. In my mind's eye, I can just see all of the brightly colored, cut fresh vegetables surrounding a bowl of hummus. You can taste the meal that would have been kind of sweet and tangy with a a blend of citrus and herbs into these freshly cooked meats, all to create an incredibly aromatic experience that, that allowed you to taste the food with all of your senses. And if you've ever been to a large Middle Eastern or Mediterranean meal, you know what I'm talking about. It's very aromatic. And it's important for us to to remember this, to set the stage. 
of a full banquet meal. Because when you realize that the scent of the perfume is so strong and powerful that it overcomes even the robust aroma of food, it helps you comprehend its significance. Maybe I can help you understand this moment, maybe a little comically, maybe I'll give you the antithesis of this moment, and you can imagine the unpleasant scent of a large group of smelly teenage boys. Did you trigger that scent in your mind? Whoa. And then one of them decides, oh, I know how to fix this. I'll just empty an entire can of Axe body spray on me, and that will do that. We all know it doesn't work, right? But immediately you know that image of a powerful, strong aroma, unpleasant as it is, all overcoming an already strong and unpleasant aroma. Here in Matthew 26, we have the reverse of that moment. We see the incredibly pleasing aroma of a full meal being overpowered by the magnificent smell of a fragrant perfume. It is believed, based off of the other gospels' accounts of this moment, that the woman who opens this jar of perfume to be Mary, the sister of Lazarus. Mary, a woman who fully, fully understands the power and purpose of Jesus. She comes in with a vase made with the veined, translucent stone of alabaster. She takes this rare oil inside, a rare oil that would have cost the average yearly wage of that time. If we were to put that into dollars today, the average yearly wage here in the United States is about $65,000. So imagine something that costs you $65,000 and Mary opens this alabaster flask and immediately, The fragrance permeates the room, overcoming the smell of all of the food and touches everybody's senses. Then she proceeds to empty not just a drop, but the entire flask over Jesus from head to toe. Interestingly, the aroma meets the disciples not with delight, but actually with indignation. They are angered by the wastefulness of such an action, annoyed that this expensive perfume would just be squandered. I can picture them reclined maybe at the other end of the table, beginning to discuss amongst themselves what would have been a better use of this perfume. One suggests we should have sold the bottle and then we could use the earnings to then take care of the poor and the needy, right? Jesus had just been sharing with us our need to take care of the poor. 
This makes logical sense. How could Mary be so foolish to needlessly misuse such a, such a precious resource? As the disciples continue to express their displeasure with the wastefulness, the text tells us that Jesus is aware of their thoughts and feelings and addresses them. Maybe the disciples are caught off guard a little bit. Maybe they thought they were keeping their conversation quiet to their end of the table. And they're surprised when Jesus addresses them directly. Jesus proclaims that this woman has done a beautiful thing. In fact, he tells them that this isn't some random, common act of hospitality, but rather an anointing to prepare him for burial. For unbeknownst to them, in just a week's time, he would be laying dead in the grave. Jesus seems to be contradicting himself, right? Just earlier in chapter 25, he's sharing about how we need to care for the poor. But he's not contradicting himself. What he does is uses this moment to remind his followers that he is the one who is worthy of glory. Not ourselves or any work that we could do, right? That all good works first must flow out of faith. Faith and understanding in who he is. Mary's act of anointing him with oil is called a a beautiful thing because it is an advantageous act of worship because soon, very soon, he will no longer be with them. Anointing with oil was a typical custom of the day. It was a way of of bestowing honor or respect on a particular person. It could have just been a a simple gesture of giving a, a small drop of scented oil when guests came into your home after they washed their hands, all the way to a grand ceremony where they would anoint a new king or anoint a new priest. It served the purpose of of setting apart something or someone with respect and dignity. When Mary anoints Jesus, he receives it as setting apart not to become the king that they have all been wanting him to be. No, but rather a setting apart to die. She anointed him as savior. Now, now we see true dignity in the kingdom of God. A dignity of humble sacrifice a worth that is qualified by his status and posture as the first among creation, but not demanded as such. 
Rather, it is a worth demonstrated by a gentle treatment for those forgotten in a sinful world. It is a dignity earned by lowering himself to be eye to eye with sinners, to look them face to face and show them his love. Mary's anointing doesn't bestow dignity or set Jesus apart to be holy, but rather it reveals the worth and honor and respect that is welled up inside of him. The oil drips down his human body to remind us of his divine power and purpose. That he is God with us. That aromatic perfume declares worthy, worthy, worthy is the lamb that is about to be slain and redeem us to God by his blood. This modest, simple scene, just days before Jesus' death, reminds us that the kingdom of God brings dignity. First, dignity of the Savior. Secondly, dignity to the sinner. And thirdly, dignity of the sick and separated. In our remaining time, I want to quickly look at these three in order to, to understand the impact of this account on our lives today. Because my guess is that none of you came here today with a alabaster flask of perfume tucked into your coat. Plus, Jesus isn't physically here for us to, to pour it on him. So, so what are we to do? What are we to do with this passage? Well, let's begin where all things begin, with Jesus. It's a good place to start. This passage establishes it really pushes to the forefront the dignity of the Savior, the dignity of Jesus. You see, from the Old Testament, the people were looking for someone who could come to save and rescue the Jews. Right On Sunday evenings, we've been gathering here to study the Old Testament books of First and Second Samuel. We've learned that God anointed David to be the chosen king of Israel. And he did so by a ceremonial anointing with aromatic oil, much like the one here in Matthew 26. Now, while king David, this was over a thousand years prior to the arrival of Jesus, God makes a promise to him. He promises to David that a chosen one will come out of his lineage to reign eternally on his throne. A chosen one anointed to save his people. Right? A chosen one to redeem them back to their creator. A chosen one. An anointed one. 
Do you know what the Hebrew word for chosen or anointed one is? Messiah. Do you know what the Greek word for chosen one or anointed one is? Christ. Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one of God to be the savior of the world. The Old Testament spoke of a, of a conquering king and a suffering savior. And we've seen time and time again throughout the gospels that the crowds wanted him to be that conquering king who brought them out from underneath the, uh, the oppressive Roman rule. They wanted to have his kingdom here on earth, right here, right now. But Jesus continually rejected that. And here, Matthew 26, we don't find the, the pomp and the circum, uh, uh, circumstances of a, of a ceremonial anointing of a king, but rather we find the humble anointing of a savior who's about to be sacrificed for our sins. Jesus, the anointed one, is worthy. He is worthy of all honor, respect, and dignity. So often we want Jesus in our lives as the anointed king to rule a kingdom of our fashioning, just like the Jews constantly tried to anoint him as their king. Our hearts slip into wanting Jesus to be that, that chosen king to just rid the world of all that is uncomfortable to us. However, that day has not come. It will come, but not yet. Now, he must be known as the anointed one chosen to die chosen to die so that we may die to ourselves and find life in him. Then, and only then, will we one day know his kingdom. This passage shows us the dignity of a savior, the worth of Jesus as savior, for if you do not know him as savior, you will not know him as king. If your life is not marked by wondrous worship of him as savior, you will not have a place in his kingdom. Because he came first as a savior, dying for our sins, but the grave did not keep him. He rose again, conquering death and sin with the assurance of returning again as the promised conquering king. But until that day, but until that day, he is to be first known as Savior with all the dignity of heaven and earth below. Then, then with, with dignity in his hand, Jesus, by his saving grace, 
bestows dignity to sinners. We find dignity of the sinner. This is a remarkable thing that happens in the act of salvation. That all those who walked away from God in a rebellion against their creator only to find worthlessness and hurt and pain because of their own sin would now be given worth and dignity by the very one they rejected. By faith and trust in Jesus as Savior, we find the forgiveness of our sins. A forgiveness that is complete and that does not linger with guilt or shame. One of my favorite verses in scripture is Romans 8.1. Now, therefore, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No longer held back by her sin, Mary has the, the dignity, the honor to anoint Jesus as Savior. She finds it to be, to be worthwhile and a, a cherished opportunity to pour out her most precious earthly possession as an act of worship for Jesus. A sinner can touch the very feet of God. Sinners can gather together as a church family and proclaim his name. A sinner can stand before you and proclaim the truth of God's word. A sinner can approach the throne of God and talk with him. This is a dignity on a scale we see nowhere else. Thirdly, we find dignity of the sick and the separated. Don't forget where this event is taking place. Jesus is anointing a savior. It didn't take place in the temple. It didn't take place in a synagogue. No, it took place in the home of a leper. One thought to be unclean, too sick to be near anyone, right? Simon, someone who must have just felt invisible to the world because no one dared look at him or talk to him, now sat front row, a seat of honor in his own home for the anointing of the Savior of the world. No longer is Simon yelled at to get to the other side of the street or to move out of the way. No, he is placed in a seat of honor. In Jesus, dignity is given to the sick and separated. So what do we do with this story? What do we do with this story of Jesus' anointing on the eve of his triumphal entry? What do we do 
But this story is the, the cross just looms in the background. I'll be honest with you, I, I struggle to give you three practical steps of application. Three simple steps to, I don't know, show Jesus' dignity in your everyday life. It, it just doesn't seem worthy of this passage. It would be cheap of me to, to draw out some modern day equivalence to an alabaster jar of perfume that, that you could give back to Jesus. And I have to be honest with you, I stand before this passage this morning humbled and, and, and I feel overwhelmed because my own life, my own life of worship seems vastly inadequate to speak as to how we should respond. But here I am, a sinner saved by grace, bestowed with dignity of my Savior to present the truth to you. So rather than attempting some Herculean task of alliterating something trite, I want to just ask you some simple questions. A question that has gripped my soul this past week. Look at Mary's lavish act of worship and ask yourself, how do I profoundly give glory to Jesus Christ. How do I profoundly give of myself to the glory of Jesus Christ? Let the Holy Spirit just do his work as you ask that question. How do I profoundly give of myself to the glory of Jesus Christ? And is it so profound that those around me, like the disciples, second guess me? There's a measurement that is humbling. You may ask, how, how can I show such a, an extraordinary act of worship to Jesus? He isn't here. I, I can't anoint him. Well, what's funny enough is that Jesus tells us who will be there when he isn't. The poor, right? We just go back to Pastor Chris's sermon from last Sunday and see that if we truly delight in Jesus, we will care for the poor and the needy. A person who sincerely loves Jesus loves the poor. Funny enough, the disciples weren't too far off in their solution, were they? They weren't. But they were miles away in their heart's motivation. What this passage does is remind us that the focal point of the work, the focal point of worship is Jesus. We don't do it for ourselves to feel good or even for the needs of others to be addressed. We do it so that Jesus may be glorified. 
We pour ourselves out as a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God, as Ephesians 5 tells us, to imitate the love of God shown to us in Jesus Christ. The more you bring honor to Jesus, the more you will respect the poor. And the more you give dignity to the poor, the more you glorify Jesus Christ. Just like when Jesus touches the unclean, they become clean. When you glorify Jesus with the dignity he deserves, you see the dignity in the people the world finds reprehensible. Christ-like life is, is generally categorized as generosity towards the needy. Mary's quote-unquote waste to worship Jesus is really the exception rather than the norm. Be careful not to invert these two as we so often do, but continually ask yourself, how do I profoundly give of myself to glorify Jesus Christ? And is it so profound that those around me second guess it? A few weeks ago, we hosted a simulcast of the Cross Conference. This is a missions conference for 16 to 25-year-olds to help them see the need for senders and goers in global missions. You wanna know a profound way of glorifying Jesus? How about 50 16 to 25-year-olds giving of their Christmas break to sit and listen to sermons all day and consider giving up a comfortable American life so that someone else may know Jesus? That's a profound act of worship. And you know what? We haven't even gotten to the part of those who stood up at that conference to say, here I am, Lord, send me. At that conference, they made a, a dramatic suggestion to those who felt led to be senders, to help mobilize people into missions. They asked, would you consider capping the amount you lived on at $65,000? That's the average American income. And give away everything above that to missions. Mary gave the equivalent of that to anoint Jesus. What are we willing to give of ourselves? Not just for the dignity of sinners to know Jesus, but for your profound worship of Jesus as the anointed Savior. Consider all that you have, not just money. Do you give of your talents? Maybe take the skill that you have developed over years of training and schooling to then use it to disciple someone else. Meet with someone in the church to share what you've learned and look for ways to integrate that into learning more about Jesus together. That's what discipleship is. Do you give of your most precious resource? Time, we're all given the same amount. Maybe 
You should give up a show on Netflix so that you can have a neighbor over and introduce them to Jesus. Right, it's been said, show me your bank account and your calendar and I'll show you what you worship most. 